Raw Not Researched Real Life Stories. Hi guys, welcome to Inspirational Interviews, a super cool life stories platform where we showcase real life stories of people from all over the world. Brave hearts, famous or not, going out there doing their thing. These interviews are not staged, the conversations can go anywhere. What's your life story? Be inspired by these stories to create your beautiful life. With me, your host, Jen Rod. Cassidy uh, uh, got in contact with me and, um, well, she found the show because, uh, yeah, I mean, I interview, you know, sometimes famous people and a lot of the time not, um, just purely because it's about these amazing life stories and um, mm. it kind of became the whole concept that I, I didn't do research, but it wasn't because I chose that. It just It's just who I am. You know, I don't need to know the background story. I just... I want to know who people are and certainly when there's a little hint of, wow, you should interview this person or that person or then I'm like, okay, cool, you know, let's find out why and let's find out the story. So I'm just going to hand over to you now. Um, tell us, tell our listeners where you are. This is first first and foremost a podcast. So obviously okay. Cassidy is your agent, I guess, and all I know, so everyone knows, I know that you have written a book and I, I, there's something with your hand. Is that right? With my, uh, no. Um, well, I, I guess maybe where this is going is when I wrote my book, I wrote it all with my left hand because after my paralysis, I, uh, so I had a surgery nine years ago to correct an aneurysm, and I was given less than a 25% chance of surviving that surgery. And when I woke up from it hours later, I quickly found that I was paralyzed from the neck down. Oh. And the the journey of this over these nine years has been uh, writing what happened and how did I make my way through? How did I find my way back to being able to move again and get on with my life? Mm. So four years into this, after a trip to Nepal, I began writing the book and because I'm still affected uh, somewhat on the right side, it's difficult for me to type with my right hand. Mm. So I typed the entire book mm. with my left hand. I wrote the entire book left-handed and I was right-hand dominant before all this occurred. Mm. So that was something else I needed to learn along the way was to uh, find my way through and uh, continue on with my life and not let this thing define me. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So you said Nepal. What happened there? Well, after four years of continued therapy, my own therapy, mm. nothing through the doctors, everything I was doing was holistic. So after four years of uh, just being so concentrated on what I needed to do to get my body working again, it was time for a break. Mm. Uh I needed a break to go uh, just enjoy life, to uh, enjoy some of these things that I was working so hard to get back. So I just up and decided it was time to take a trip someplace and go somewhere I'd never been and get off the grid and 
meet new people and do some exciting things along the way. Mm. So I chose to go to Nepal by myself and uh, just start adventuring again. One of the things I've always enjoyed throughout life was Mm. adventuring. So it was time to go do that again. And I did that for two weeks and enjoyed myself. I set up a number of um, uh, adrenaline rushing uh, experiences for me to do. So I was back in the saddle with that too. And I just wanted to create new memories. So that was the, uh, one of the big things for me was to get back into life again and start creating new memories. So the memories weren't all what transpired over the last four years Mm. and that being the only thing I was talking about, wouldn't it be great to get back into my life and Mm. have something new to talk about? Mm. Mm. So my mind's saying to me, how the hell did you go to Nepal? Because you woke up paralyzed from the neck down. So I think then we need to back up and now find out. So you had an aneurysm, first of all, that's crazy in itself. Um, so just, yeah, let's start from there. Let's start from what happened from that moment to how you ended up actually being mobile in Nepal. And then I want to find out also who's Jeffrey just because this is not you, right? This is a part of your story. It's not all of your story. Correct. Correct. So nine years ago, I, uh, June, 2012, I woke up one day with a headache Mm. and, headache continued for 10 days. It turned into a migraine. The migraine continued for 10 days. I've had migraines in the past, but I've never had a migraine like this. This was by far the worst migraine I'd ever had in my life. Mm. The pain scale was through the roof. So I wound up going to my family doctor thinking, you know, this is something that, you know, he could possibly give me an answer to. And the next thing I know, I'm being taken by ambulance to the hospital and I'm in critical condition. And when I got there and they uh, started evaluating me, they saw, okay, it looks like he might have an aneurysm. And at this point, this was a series of left turns and right turns. And you find you're, you're not in control anymore. Mm. Uh, One turn you survive, the other turn you don't. And for whatever reason, each of these turns I was experiencing was allowing me to continue my life. An example of that is the doctor sends me off to get a CAT scan Mm. and they wheel me into this room for the scan and the lady doing the scan finishes. I had a blanket over my, my face because I, I was photophobic. I couldn't handle light anymore. (laughs) So she knelt down next to me Mm. after she finished the scan and she whispered in my ear saying, I was told to only do one scan of your head. I chose to do a second of your neck as well. And thank God she did because that's where they found the aneurysm. And then above the aneurysm, my artery was dissected. So the blood was getting into the walls of the artery. So if the aneurysm wasn't going to kill me, the dissection Mm. was. So Now I'm being sent down to a hospital in Charlotte, North Carolina, where a neurosurgical team is waiting on me. They put me in neurosurgical ICU for 10 days, hoping through medication they could diminish the size of the uh, aneurysm. 
and it wasn't working. So the doctor told me the only thing we have left is surgery. Your chances of survival are less than 25%. You need to know that up front. And I said, well, 25% is better than nothing. So let's get on with it. Wow. And after the surgery, I wake up and I'm finding I'm paralyzed from the neck down. And, you know, of course, shock just runs through you along with claustrophobia because you can't move your body. You've got no control. So while I was thinking about all that, I I thought to myself, I'm going to find my way through this. And maybe this is a good opportunity to write about this as time goes on, because I have no idea where this is going to go. And as I was thinking all that, the doctor came in to check on me and he says to me, hey, the good news is you survived the surgery. The bad news is you're more than likely never going to walk again. And I, I wasn't ready for that. I was 49 years old at the time. And I said, no, um, I'm going to walk out of this hospital. And he smiled and he gave me a tap on the shoulder and walked out of the room. So now I'm being sent over to a rehab facility in the hospital and I was bound and determined that I was going to figure out how to walk again. But to do that, I had to change my mindset. I found that I needed to take a leap of faith and set everything out of my mind that I knew and try to wrap my arms around things that I wasn't used to. And Mm. when I say that, what I mean is when they took me to the physical therapy uh, office on a Saturday afternoon, the physical therapist evaluating me stood me up out of the wheelchair on a body I couldn't feel with a belt wrapped around my waist so she could control my body. And she said, I just want you to stand here. Imagine what that's like. You're standing and you have no ability to realize your body exists. So you're, you're floating. Mm. It's like floating on a cloud. Mm. Uh, I couldn't feel my body. But one of the things that was really latching on to me was I was standing, even though I couldn't feel anything. So over the next few weeks, they kept working with me. Uh, I started noticing that I could feel at the deep tissue level. I just couldn't feel at the skin layers. Mm. I had no more concept of what feeling meant, what pain meant, what hot or cold meant. All those things Mm. were gone. Mm. I, for the most part, I was a ghost. I didn't exist. I didn't exist like a regular human being. I existed from the head up, but not from the neck down. Mm. So somehow along the way, I was able to start mastering this, even though I couldn't feel, to start moving my body. I started noticing I had control of the muscles on the left side of my body and barely any control of the muscles on the right. Mm. But I was able to work through this. And lo and behold, one day I'm being stood up to hold onto a walker and the physical therapist is telling me this is the beginning in a few weeks we'll see how far you can walk and i said well to get out of the hospital i have to prove to you i can walk with the walker correct and she said yes and i said well how far do i need to walk 
to make that occur. And she said, well, 50 feet. And I said, well, from where I'm standing, where is 50 feet from here? And she said, well, the front door of the uh, uh, physical therapy gym. And I said, okay, well, get out of my way. I'm going to make that happen right now. <laughs> so I started moving my legs and making that walker move. And she was crying while she was watching me because I previously told her, I'm not just doing this for me. I'm doing this for the other people here in the gym with spinal cord injuries that are never going to walk again. So I made that 50 feet happen. And she eventually took the wheelchair from the assistant behind me, um, bashed the wheelchair into the back of my knees and forced me to sit down. Mm. So, uh, but I was getting my 50 feet and then some. I actually made it around the entire gym yeah. uh, before she did that. So that was the start of um, me reclaiming my life. And I was okay that this life was going to be a new life. Mm. I was a second chance and I wasn't going to squander that. Yeah. So, uh, and I wasn't going to let these limitations and this disability define me. Yeah. So I moved on from there, finally made my way back home. And then started figuring out how to get back into my life uh, of what that new life was going mm, to be. Mm. So how long were you in the hospital for? Uh, six weeks. Okay. So you said that she said that you wouldn't be able to leave unless you could walk again. Yes. But, I mean, the hospital's not going to house you. So what was then the, the, the sort of point from there? It, you know, it's it's interesting how you are told of these things that can make you better, and especially if surgery is involved. And then after the surgery, you start finding it's incumbent upon you to be the master of your destiny. Mm -hmm. And it's great that they can do this fix, but, oh, hey, it, it took a turn we weren't expecting. Mm. Uh, so... Now we're going to give you physical therapy and um, we are going to tell you these are things that you need to do to master while you're home. And part of that was mastering things in the wheelchair and then mastering things with a walker, mm. knowing that uh, the walker might be the best I ever get, uh, but that I will be in the wheelchair most of my life. So I just wasn't ready to resign myself to the fact that I was going to spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair mm, and mm. I was going to figure out how to make the walker work and then beyond that move to a cane and then see if I can get beyond that mm. to where I'm not needing any of yeah, those devices. Yeah. So, but now that sounded to me like that was also, so that was also your decision you didn't want to walk out of there I mean you you didn't want to walk out of there I mean you say that like habitually right you didn't want to you didn't want to leave the hospital in in a wheelchair you didn't want to and they it was kind of like they said well cool you can leave the hospital with a walker but then you need to be able to leave it with a walker right well they they weren't expecting anything with the walker. I told them, I told the doctor when he came to see me in the recovery room that I would walk out of that hospital. I looked him right in the eye and said, I'll walk out of this hospital. Okay, yeah, and yeah. On the day 
on the day that occurred, uh, that I was being discharged, they wheeled me up to the front door with my walker in hand in my wheelchair. Mm. And when I got to the front door, I opened the walker and uh, stood up myself away from the chair. And although it was ugly, it was still walking. It was one foot in front of the other all the way out to the car. So I was not going to be denied and I was going to make that happen. Yeah, yeah. So tell me, where does that come from? That <laughs> that 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 sentence. I was not going to be denied. Where does that come from? Well, it you know it begins. It goes all the way back to my childhood. Um, growing up, uh, I I didn't have the greatest childhood at home. Uh, there were things that were difficult at home. And when they were, I would ride my bike to the beach. I would um, uh, stare out at the horizon and tell myself there's a better life out there. And I'm going to go find that life. Uh, I'm not going to let these things that are happening to me deter me. And I'm going to be the master of my destiny here. So um, I am going to travel. I am going to travel the world, and one day I'm going to be standing on the other side of this ocean looking back at where I was sitting when I was younger. So I was going to make that happen one way or another, and that's where going into the military, the Air Force, uh, eventually took me. Mm-hmm. Um, I began traveling with the military and uh, had my flying career in the military, uh, as part of that flying career, I had to go through survival school. Mm-hmm. I had to learn to survive uh, in a situation. Uh, if I was uh, behind enemy lines or something along those lines, I had to figure out how to survive. And while I was going through that school, that SEER training, I found a different side of me. I found a completely different Jeff. And... I found with that, Jeff, that anything's possible as long as I put my mind to it. And I was glad to meet that other person. Mm. And it was really interesting later on in life when the paralysis happened that uh, I was going to that other other Jeff to find my way. Mm. Uh, So I kind of found with the things that were happening in my life, throughout my life, were kind of preparing me for this. Mm. Uh, I don't know that this was my fate to be paralyzed, but I can certainly say everything that I learned throughout my life prepared me to deal with this setback, to deal with this trauma. And despite the pain, despite the setbacks, I was going to win this. Mm. I was going to get on with my life to find my way forward, that being the title of the book, I was going to find my way forward through this. And I was going to be happy again. This was not going to be a setback. Mm. I even found that while I was laying in the hospital paralyzed, I could talk to family members and friends and put a smile on their face despite me being laying, me being there in a bed paralyzed. I found in that uh, rehab center in the room that I was in. I had a roommate. He was um, uh, 
He was there because of his diabetes, lost a leg below the knee, and he'd given up on life. Wow. And the doctors and nurses couldn't talk to him to get him motivated. And they'd given up on him as much as he'd given up on himself. And each night, two, three o'clock in the morning, we would start talking to one another. And I would sit there motivating him, telling him, look, you've lost a leg below the knee. Okay, get a prosthetic leg and get on with your life. You've got a full life ahead of you. Be thankful you're not in my situation. You're not paralyzed. You have the ability to move your body. Move mm -hmm. on with your life. Find happiness. Don't let this thing define you. Unbeknownst to me, the nurse's station was right outside of our door, and they would sit out there each evening listening to me motivate him, and they would sit out there crying that I was trying to motivate him. Mm. And two of the things that were really important to me there were, one, that I've always been a person that's loved or enjoyed giving back, and it felt good to be able to do that in mm. that environment where I'm laying there paralyzed. But the other thing that it said to me was, you still have something to offer. You may be paralyzed, but your life isn't over and you do have things to offer people. And that was the, that was one of the first times that that really hit me that, yeah, okay, life isn't over. You keep doing what you're doing and move on. Mm. So they eventually moved me out of the room and he did pass away. But, um, oh, wow. uh, you know, how I did he pass him, away? Sorry, just quickly. What, because he, his, um, his health conditions were, uh, uh, shutting him down yeah, and, okay. you know, he had the ability to make change, but he, he was just giving up and, the reason they moved me out of the room was they knew that was coming. And mm. despite the devastating situation I was in with my trauma, they didn't want to pile anything else onto that. Mm. Um, they, they were motivated by me being motivated. Uh, even the doctors uh, were continually amazed that I was not going to let mm. negativity into my environment. So, um, so, but every day since earlier on, oh, you said earlier on, you said when you were in the air force and when you were on the other side, right? That's also when, when you discovered, you know, that you had this fighter in you, you know, this, this guy who's, who's gonna live the life he chooses. But, yeah. but the thing is, it's funny that you say it then or should I say you give it you give it weight then, but actually you also said it when you were a little boy, when you had a bad childhood. You actually, you mentioned that you also said to yourself, looking out the window, there's a better life, there's a better world. So it's not actually only then in the Air Force when you were an older man or a young man, should I say, that you discovered this. You always had this in you. Yeah, you're right. Uh I have always had it in me. Um, I may not have realized it at the time, but I did always have it in me. Uh, I don't know where it came from, but I, I just found that there was a life to live and I'm going to live it. And mm. not only am I going to live it, I'm going to live it happily. And I'm 
going to live it my way, uh, being a person that is not, it is opposite of what I was seeing at home, uh, the negative things that I was seeing at home. I wasn't going to let that become me. I was going mm. to find and discover who me was and mm. to, uh, to find the positive side and wrap my arms around that and be that yeah. person. And mm. that was something that carried me through time and time again. If I was going through something difficult, I could always find something to put a positive spin on what I was going through and find my way through and not, not get dug into something that I can't find my way out of. Mm. So it was important for me to have that survivor instinct in me and to find my way through whatever uh, might be holding me mm. back or holding me down. Mm. And, and then if I could, if I could bestow that on others going through a difficult time, then th that equally helped me if I was going through a difficult time. Yeah. So if I could help somebody else or give back in some manner, those were the things that helped me feel better mm, through mm. life. And as I got into this situation with the paralysis, uh, if I found that there was a difficult time while I was fighting my way back in my recovery, one of the things that always helped me was being able to give back and help somebody else. Mm. Uh, so if I could sit down and talk with somebody going through a difficult time mm. to help them through their difficult time, then that helped me as well. Yeah. So, so tell us what, so, so you got out of the hospital. So, and I, I said earlier, lead us to what then happened from your journey of getting out the hospital to Nepal. Tell us what, how you then trans, trans or should I say how you navigated that time? Because I can imagine you must've gone through some also serious, mental dips yes um so one of the things i started discovering as this journey began was my mindset was such that i thought this process i was going through was 80 percent physical 20 percent psychological and as time went on i started finding it was the exact opposite of this and as I was now home and trying to find my um, my way forward and doing this in a holistic manner, I was trying different therapies. I was uh, trying to find my body again through the gym, uh, trying to get muscles working again through the gym. I was trying... Um, oh, massage therapy. Mm -hmm. I was trying uh, acupuncture, uh, yoga, uh, tai chi, um, Pilates. And little by little, I started finding what was working and what wasn't working. Mm -hmm. It was a very difficult road. Lots of pain, uh, lots and lots of physical pain. I still deal with the physical pain aspects of this. Uh, but as I was able to pull the layers back a little more each time, the things that I 
continued finding were working the most were neuromuscular massage therapy, uh, Pilates, and dry needling. So those were the top, and I was finding benefit, good benefit from all of it. Four years into it, though, I found, like I said, it was time to take a break. After I got out of the hospital, six months after I got out of the hospital, I went to Paris with my family. Um, It was a trip that I'd promised I could barely walk, but I made it through that trip. Um, It wasn't easy moving, uh, walking. Uh, It was extremely difficult. Uh, uh, You know, it took a lot of um, uh, mental strength to make my body move. Mm Mm-hmm. But I, I won through that. I I was able to climb to the top of the Notre Dame Cathedral with my niece and nephew. And when we got up to the top and it was time to go down the spiral staircase, I quickly found, oh no, the handrail's on the wrong side. So I couldn't use my hand my right hand to hold the handrail. So I needed a handrail on the left side of the walkway or the staircase going down, mm. but the, the handrail was on the right side. So how did I find my way through that? I turned around and went down the staircase backwards. Yeah. Um, the entire spiral staircase yeah. all the way to the bottom. So that was a win. And four years later... You, you were lucky to have gone up there, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Wow, yeah. you were one of the last. I don't know if they still do well after yeah, the fire. Yeah, yeah. You know. yep. So, um, so four years later, uh, when I said to myself, it was time to go to Nepal, I knew I could do that. I, I knew I had the confidence to make that trip happen. Mm. I was walking at that point, didn't need the wheelchair anymore. So wait, hold on a Uh, sec. Wait, 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 wait. So before you now get to Nepal, so just out of interest, this trip now in Paris, so you not married or you don't have a partner or, or do you? And you- I, I am married. So is I, that, I am married. Is that now? Because back then, who were you with in Paris? Uh, I was with my wife, um, my cousin and his wife and uh, their two kids. Okay. So, okay. Uh, yeah. 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 And so, and, uh, and was your was your wife with you? Like, where was she in your journey? Was she with you when when this happened? How, what? Where was she uh, during these time steps? Uh, dur- uh, when I, uh, when I was in the hospital, she was there. Okay. Uh, yeah, she was there, uh, through that period of time. Uh, uh, she was there while I was going through the, um, process of, uh, learning how to exist at home again. I, as time went on while I was home, I slowly figured out how to drive a car again. I did that on my own. And once I figured out how to drive, then I could take myself to these different therapy appointments with all the different therapies mm-hmm. I was doing. Mm-hmm. So at that much, at that point, I was pretty much on my own, yeah. uh, making things happen. Okay. I figured out how to go to a grocery store to shop again and do those th- sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. So, and what about um, work? What work were you doing before and then after the, you left the hospital? Did that change? So um, my last, uh, I'm in the airline industry. I, so. I was just because I in the back there, I was looking, I was thinking, hold on, what has he got in the back there? Like, 
You know what I mean? When, when, when we now moved over to Corona interviews, everything must be kind of a bit deliberate what people put in the back behind them, right? Oh, and I, then I was looking, I was thinking, those are aeroplanes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so the, uh, the big white one over my um, left shoulder there uh, with the blue tail, uh, that's one of the airlines that I flew for worldwide. Wow. Uh, uh, so I was in the cargo industry, uh, flying freight worldwide. Um, so did that through three different airlines. Uh, now I teach at a small commuter airline. I teach brand new pilots coming into the airline industry. Oh, that's so, cool. But yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I've had a full career of it and enjoyed every minute of it. Back to your question though, in 2008, when the economic downturn hit the United mm, States, the world, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, the um, airline industry took a big hit and mm. the airline I was working for um, uh, went bankrupt. So I decided at that point uh, that it was time for a little break and maybe I, I would go back to college and work on another degree and um, maybe I would start thinking about teaching. I uh, um, took a um, position with a board for a uh, veterans group for a short while. And um, then all of a sudden in 2012, uh, this thing happens with the aneurysm. And three years later, uh, January of 2015, I was asked uh, by some friends from a previous airline, hey, could you come over to this new startup airline? Uh, we need somebody to help us put a training department together. And I said, sure, but let me tell you my situation with my limitations. I said, why don't you guys talk amongst yourselves and decide, hey, do you guys want Jeff to come along? If you do, great. If you don't, I completely understand. Mm. And that didn't take very long. They got back to me and said, we don't care about your body. If you need a wheelchair, we'll throw you in a wheelchair. All we care about <laughs> is your brain. So get down here right now to Miami and we need you to get to work right now. So um, uh, whatever you need, we'll make it happen, but we yeah. need you here. Oh, cool. So um, all of a sudden I'm working for another startup cargo airline and developing their training department. And it, it was a lot of fun uh, yeah. working with old friends. Um, most of us had worked in a training environment before. So, uh, and flown together uh, worldwide. So it was a lot of fun to be amongst uh, very good friends once again. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had to figure out how do I stand in a classroom again for eight hours? How do I go stand in a simulator again? How do I make those things happen? Mm. But little by little I did. And after five years of it, I was finally getting to the point where it was getting a little difficult to travel every month from North Carolina to South Florida to go to work for a few weeks or sometimes a couple of months at a time. Mm. And it was just time for a change. So I took a job with an airline uh, here in town, a small airline. And I thought, you know, hey, I can contribute a lot here after a full career traveling worldwide in the airline industry. So um, now it's fun to talk with young people who've never had an airline job before and uh, sit them down and 
point them in the right direction. So yeah, cool. Again, it's giving back. Yeah, and that feels wonderful. I think that is right. It's it's when you you know we we're so stuck in our heads and people in general nowadays, you know, so stuck in their heads. And I think when you when you're in that position where you're standing up with people, when you when you're and when there's this exchange, right? I think that that's what people are lacking so much nowadays because the exchanges are all through social media. I mean, and and by the way, I'm like super impressed that you didn't have a WhatsApp. <laughs> <laughs> Was that deliberate? Because, I mean, guys, everyone listening, I was trying to get hold of Jeffrey. But I was like, am I punching in it wrong? I mean, maybe I'm not familiar with the codes, but they all seem the same with all my guests. But I couldn't find you on WhatsApp. So, and, yeah, you didn't have – This is my first, yeah. That's amazing. um, Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I had to hire Cassidy to help me with uh, my social media work because – I wasn't used to doing all of what's involved with social media as the book was uh, coming to be. Mm. So um, I I desperately needed help with that. It's one thing working a full-time job teaching every day to then putting that aside Mm -hmm. to now do this social media thing. And I was finding it was such a vacuum. I, I had no idea it was everything that it was. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, uh, WhatsApp, uh, today's my first day. That's so, amazing. Um, and it's, it's, and so to go back to my point, right. It's, um, the, the, it's that it's the face to face interaction that, I mean, you, you, you really with because your senses are so incredibly sharp to the distinction of what, what helps you, right? Because you you lost something that you always had, yeah. so you you understand the the intensity of things. So you really feel the intensity of when you're actually standing with people. Give you you know in your case teaching, and it can be in other cases many things. But you really because of that, you know, losing it, you understand how much of a positive impact that has. Yeah. Um... You know, it's it's very interesting uh, listening to what you've just been saying. One of the things that I found since the pandemic began is the parallels between the parallels of paralysis. Let me say it that mm. way. Uh, for so many years, um, say traveling, well, traveling around the world, but traveling to Africa. Um, anytime I was traveling to Africa, where wherever I might be going, I not only needed my passport, I needed my shot record. And I had to be able to show that I had my yellow fever vaccine, my cholera vaccine, typhoid, you name it. Mm. And, you know, you, or I would find myself with some of the places I was traveling and the things I was dealing with, um, once I got home, I had to put all that stuff on a shelf because once I got home, everybody wanted to see that Jeff that they knew. And I had to put all of those things that I just came from a day or two earlier away. Mm -hmm. I had to pack those things in a box and close the lid of the box because people don't want to know about those things. Mm. 
when people here in this country see things on TV going on elsewhere in the world, they're seeing what's going on from the comfort and the safety of their living room. And they may have done that their entire life. Mm. Now, all of a sudden, this pandemic thing happens. And it's not on the other side of the world. It's at your front door. It's in your house. And people didn't know how to deal with that. People were now paralyzing themselves socially and for obvious reasons, but it's still a paralysis. And I was identifying a lot with that. And I found through talking with people, you know, you know, you listen to their fears and I could identify with that and say, it's time now for you to take a leap of faith. I had to take a leap of faith with my paralysis and you're in some way similar or going through something similar that I've gone through Mm. and your paralysis is now a social paralysis and it's difficult to get back there in the world and, Mm. uh, you know, get the gears turning to get on with your life instead of being paralyzed inside your home. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with either one of them. They're perfectly normal. They're perfectly human. But I could see the the parallels of it. And I was very cognizant of it. And I felt for people going through their version of their paralysis. Mm. Uh, so it was it was quite interesting to me since all of this began, watching others and how they're dealing with finding their way through, their way forward, uh, their way beyond this trauma that they're experiencing. Mm. Mm. So in some ways, I kind of find what I wrote in the book, uh, having parallels to what people are going through right now. And it was so important when I wrote the book to talk about those things that were, you know, painful and hindering me. But then beyond that, hey, there's hope and inspiration in there too. Mm. And I think we all need that. I think we all need some hope and inspiration right now with everything Mm. that we found in our lives that um, affect us every day Mm. as we we try to find our way back to what a happy life is again. Mm. And I think, you know, on that note and and why, you know, I said to Cassidy, um, you know, you know, let's do the interview. You know, I don't know, you know, I mean, I don't know anything about anyone really that comes on the show, but, you know, anyone who's written a book for me um, has such a high accolade in my books because it takes, first of all, a lot of commitment and dedication to write a book. Um, and then also, secondly, it's it's through books, it's through sharing stories. And I love true stories. I mean, find me in front of Netflix or any of these, you know, platforms that now have films. If it's a true story, I'm there. I'm going to watch it. You know, it, yeah. it just for me, I grow through stories because because the way stories impact you, it's not like just because you hear the story and then boom, you impacted it. That's not how it affects you. A story affects you because it it switches a click in your head. It literally, it like does a little switch where suddenly you see things through a different perspective and not everyone has the capacity to change someone's perspective, but that is what stories do. They, they, they just, they click a switch and the minute your perspective is different, 
boom, your whole world can change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and our world, our worlds uh, individually need to change uh, for a positive reason. Uh, you know, I, I said from, I said to myself from the moment I woke up paralyzed that I was going to find my way through this. Uh, but one of the things that I found right from that very moment was there's no instruction book for somebody to lean into and say, mm. Hey, I've got this thing called paralysis. How do I find my way through this? What do I do mm. first? What do I do mm. second or third? There's no instruction book. And this was a way for me to get my mind off of all the panic to say to myself, okay, it's all right that nothing works from the neck down, but your brain still works. Your eyes still work. Your mouth still works. You can talk. You can help influence people in a positive manner. Say something nice. Uh, wish somebody a wonderful day. Isn't it great that you have the ability to do that, even though you can't feel your body? So those were the reasons I wanted to write this book, is to say, despite whatever you're going through, it's not so bad. You can find your way through to something better. Okay, you may have to redefine how you do things, but that's okay. Don't let yourself live in the past. Your future's in front of you. Point yourself in that direction mm. and whatever way possible, move yourself that way. Find some way to do something positive every day, whether it's staring out of a window at the sky, at the sun, at a bird. If you can go outside, great, do that. Maybe lay down in the backyard in the grass and look up at the sky and say to yourself, look at this great thing I, I get to do right now. Yeah. Even if it's short-lived, just that you can do it. Mm. Um, wish somebody a nice day. But when you do it, look them in the eye when you do that and mean it when you say that. Yeah. I'm wishing you a really nice day. It, it may seem crazy, but those are the little wins that we need, especially right now. Mm. So mm. Um, find whatever it is that helps you get there. And embrace that yeah. and, and know that it's okay. Mm. Know that you you are okay. Mm. Um, you know, that for the longest time was something that evaded me, knowing that I was okay. I, When I woke up paralyzed, I was living one breath at a time. And I was saying to myself, if you can just make it to the next breath, things are going to get better. And I lived that like that for months and I made it through that. Mm. And it wasn't until four years later, the uh, June of 2016, my neuromuscular massage therapist, Jackie Murray, looked at me one day while she was watching me and while I was talking and she cut me off and she said, you know what? You need to tell yourself you're okay. You survived. You're, you're okay. Look at me and tell me you're okay say those words. And it shocked me because up to that point, one, I hadn't thought about it. And two, nobody ever said that to me. And it, it, it really impacted me. It, mm. it really made me sit there and think and to reevaluate and to start thinking, I need to be more mindfully aware of things. 
And isn't this great that once more I'm learning something really good and useful along this journey? Mm. And that just says right there that things aren't over. You are making a difference and you've survived. Okay, move on. Mm. Uh, You know, and at the end of the year, when I did that trip to Nepal, um, at one point I chartered a helicopter to take me to uh, Mount Everest. Oh, wow. Um, Lovely. This was the pinnacle of my journey. There was a reason I was going to Mount Everest. And I Mm. wrote about that in the book. Um, uh, But after leaving Mount Everest, um, I I was taken over to a, um, the tallest restaurant or the, the highest restaurant in the world Mm -hmm. Uh, or highest hotel. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, at 13,000 feet. And I had champagne breakfast there and invited perfect strangers to join me in a toast. And a, uh, very nice Japanese lady, looked at me and smiled and she said, what are we toasting? And I said, life. And she said, oh, that's great. I'm in. So um, (laughs) so we all had a great time. Uh, I leave there sometime later to go to um, the world's most dangerous airport, uh, Lukla Airport. Yeah. And uh, um, we stopped there to refuel before our trip back to Kathmandu. And while the pilot was refueling the helicopter, a Sherpa came and helped me um, up into the village to uh, walk around and meet people and uh, buy a few things. And on the way back to the helicopter, he's helping me down these cement stairs uh, to the helicopter pad. And I see this lady in tears, um, frantically trying to speak to the pilot. And he was busy. It was clear he didn't have time for. And I was asking the Sherpa on the way down the steps, what was wrong? Could he interpret what was wrong with the lady? Mm. And uh, he told me that uh, two days earlier on a Wednesday, her husband had an accident, uh, I guess up by uh, Everest Base Camp. And mm. they had to life flight him to Kathmandu. And here it is two days later. And she's just finding out her husband passed away. And he told me that um, she was trying to ask the pilot if she could get a ride. And he was telling her apparently no, because the the helicopter was chartered. And I asked the Sherpa, hey, can you help me around the helicopter over to the pilot so I can talk to him? And he said, yeah. So we got over there and I said, hey, um, um, I understand this lady's looking for a ride. It's my charter today. We're taking her to Kathmandu. So um, my guide and his wife were with us on the trip. And um, we got the uh, lady in the backseat of the helicopter um, Mm. uh, with my guide and his wife. And for 45 minutes on the way back, she was crying. And I, it was just tearing my heart apart that I couldn't do more. And I, I just so wished I could have done something else Shame. to help her. Mm. And we get back to Kathmandu, get her in a cab, um, go into the hospital. And um, my guide and his wife were now taking me back to my hotel. And, you know, it's quiet in the car on the ride back. And I said, 
what was the lady saying in the back seat of the helicopter all the way back? And um, my guide's wife said, Jeffrey, she kept asking us to say thank you to you, uh, to thank you for taking her on the helicopter. And I said, oh, my God. I said, that's the least we could do. I, I wish we could have done more. And she said, you did everything you could. Mm. Um, so that evening, I um, I sent a text message to my um, uh, therapist, Jackie, and I was telling her about it. And she said, um, you know, I don't know if you believe in karma or fate, but I, I think you were meant to be there at that time uh, to help her. And I responded back and I, I said, you know, we don't always get to help others, uh, to help somebody else. And one of the things that has always been on my mind since this paralysis began was mm. finding a way to help somebody else. And it sure felt good today to do that. Yeah. And a couple of days later, my, um, my guide and his wife, um, uh, I took them out to dinner uh, to say thank you. I was getting ready to leave the next evening. And I uh, was sitting at dinner with them, and they asked, so of everything you've done in the two weeks you've been here, what did you enjoy most? And I said, well, uh, that's easy to answer. And I said, you know, anybody can uh, do those adrenaline junkie things I did the entire time I was here, but... How often do you get to say to yourself, I got to help another human being today? Mm. I, I said that that was the best thing that could have ever happened. Yeah. And I was so happy that I got the opportunity to help her. Yeah. So um uh so I I went back home very enlightened and feeling much better about my life. Yeah. Not that I felt bad about it before I left, but I I really needed that trip and I was um I was so happy that I had that opportunity. Very thankful. It's funny how it's funny how we become grateful for helping someone else. How that experience ends up making us grateful, right? Feeling the sense yes. of greatness. Yeah. Yeah. It it's it's such a good thing. You know, when I talk to people now on social media and they're asking questions and they're telling me their own stories and it, it always feels good to mm. hear somebody else's story. Um, I, I really enjoy that more than I could begin to tell you. Mm. And when they ask, how do you, how do you continue to fight? Where do you find the energy to do that? And this is where, this is where I find my fuel. And this is where I love imparting that, that, you know, giving back in some manner, helping somebody, even if it's just listening mm. to somebody. Mm. Um, that's where I get my fuel. That's where I find the energy to continue on. Yeah. Tell me something. How did you talk about having a rough childhood? Like, how did that impact you now? How did that make you who you are today? And so, you know what I mean? Because that was like such yeah. a rough time of your life. Um I mean, and you also, when you talk, I must say, you do talk with like a smile on your face, like you, but it's not because you're smiling. You just have, you do have a smile glow about you. Do you know what I mean? Like some people do and some people don't. I mean, I don't, like, I don't have a smile on my face when I talk. Like, 
um, you know, but you, you do have a, you talk with a smile and you sound like you also talk with a gentle heart, a gentle soul. Um, so is that you, like, is that you on a daily basis? Would your wife agree with that? And, and tell me how your childhood has actually, although it was so rough, like talk to us about that. So it was, um, it was an abusive upbringing, Mm. um, when I was younger, um, from one parent, um, uh, that parent would come home after work and vent their frustrations. And, uh, I was the focus of, uh, those frustrations and where they were vented. Uh, so it was very traumatic. Mm. Um, I, I found that, um, I felt bad for that parent, uh, that that was the only way they could find an outlet was to do that. And for whatever reason, I didn't want to be judgmental or mad. I wanted to try to understand, uh, what brings you, what brings somebody to, to want to harm somebody else. And I don't know why I, I had those thoughts way back then. Uh, but I, I didn't want to be critical. I, I wanted to avoid it, Mm. uh, as best I could. And if there was anything I could do to not provoke it, but you find that you're not provoking it, Mm -mm. it's not you. And it, it took years for me to understand that. And even though all that happened, as time went on, years, decades, I, to this day, still put out the olive branch um, and to look beyond it and uh, not um, fault that person for what they did all those years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I knew I needed to continue on with school. I needed to find a way to have fun. Um, I found one of my outlets was always going to the beach. Uh, The beach was a safe place for me. It was not only that place where I could look out at the horizon, but it was a place where I could go snorkeling. I could go snorkeling for lobster. I could just snorkel. I chose at an early age to learn how to scuba dive. and I did that at age 15. Um, but I, I was going to find a way through this thing somehow. I didn't have all the answers. But one thing I found time and time again was if I had the opportunity to help somebody else, for whatever reason, that brought um, a sense of, of worth. Mm. But it also helped me heal. That was the most important thing was... Mm. By helping somebody else, it took my mind off of this thing that was very difficult. So that was just something I latched onto. But then going on with life to continue answering your question, Mm. I always found while I'm talking to somebody, and and I, I think about this daily when I'm in a classroom teaching, not only am I watching body language while I'm teaching every different mind in the class and Mm. realize 
everybody learns a little differently, but uh, I think about my own experiences as I was growing up in the aviation industry and how difficult that was. And um, I would always tell myself, if I'm ever an instructor, I am not going to teach people the way I was taught. I'm going to be a kinder person. I'm not going to be judgmental. I'm not a judgmental person. So I'm going into this to try to make somebody's life better. And I'm reinvigorated with that, with this job that I have now, when I step mm. into a classroom with young people that have never been in this industry, this is their first experience. And I always go into it saying to myself, you know, how would I want to experience this if I was in their shoes all over again? Wouldn't it be great if that person standing at the front of the room wasn't yelling and being judgmental, but was being mm. kind and, and giving of mm. information that they experienced throughout their lives to make them feel better. So that really invigorates me. Um, you know, one that I get to give back, but that I, I get to do this in a manner that, they feel good about it mm. and they can embrace this, this new life they're stepping into with no stress. And they don't feel like they're drinking from the fire hose or, oh my God, what if I step in the wrong direction and suddenly I don't get to have the job? I, I wouldn't want anybody feeling mm. like that. So, so I, I kind of approach life in that manner as well. Everybody that I talk to, it's important for me to, um, convey that, um, you know, hey, I'm, I'm not a threat. And if you need help, if all you need is for somebody to listen, I'm, I'm very happy to do that. Um, I don't know what's bothering you, but if you need somebody to listen, mm. I'm willing to do that. And so, do, you, do you think that that's also because when you were a child, were you, were you wanting to have someone who would listen to you at that time? Did you did you have someone who would listen to you aside from this other parent? I, I yeah, my um, you know certainly the other parent would listen, mm. but the other parent was busy working also, so mm. it was it was difficult um, uh, to have a parent to listen. One understood, but th that's about as far as it went. Um, mm. My grandparents certainly listened. Uh, my cousin Linda always listened. She was mm. more like a sister to me uh, than a cousin. And I found that, um, you know, as time went on, my my father and my cousin Linda were, were the two that I always um, went to when I needed a sounding board. They were mm. the most important people in my life. Mm. Uh, you know, right up t through getting married. And, um, uh, you know, then all of a sudden, uh, years later, um, December of 2010, my father has stage four cancer. Uh, I know um, we're days away from whatever's going to happen. Mm. And on December 23rd, uh, he passed away. Mm. And nine days later, my cousin Linda passed away. Wow. So I lost both nine <sighs> days apart. Um, the that two is crazy, that I, Jeffrey. That's yeah. like freaking, that's like, 
that's like screw you life i mean come on right well you know you once again <laughs> here you are faced with a trauma exactly and you need to find your way through mm. and when the you know when the aneurysm and the paralysis and all that happened two years later um the two people that i really wanted to speak to the most uh wow they weren't there anymore and mm. You know, I was thankful my wife was there and we could talk through these things. But um, the two people that were there throughout my childhood mm. were no longer there. And oh. once again, I had to um, find a better place mm. and not let myself dwell on things that weren't going to put me in a better place. Mm, so, exactly. Weren't going to help. So, guys, listening now, um, as you uh, can hear, we're now starting a whole nother interview. So, um, internet connections are at our, we're at the mercy, should I say, of internet connections. And so, we're just having to sort of pick up where we left off yesterday because we lost the second part of the interview. So, again, this is also quite raw um, uh, and and we're just going to wing it. Um, so, Jeffrey, now I have listened back to our interview yesterday just so that I don't, you know, ask repetitive questions, but I think I'm going in the right flow anyway, you know, just with my own curiosity. So, um, what I wanted to know, so we, we ended up, we, where we where we actually ended off on the recording was talking about um your your childhood and i said you know does that you know how has that also molded you to be the person you are today because you know i always look at life stories through a positive lens you know what i mean even when there's like yeah. the worst things that have happened i'm in, in because it's because that's also who i am that's how i navigate my life is i see things you know, you get a blow in life, you 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 react to the blow in whatever your natural way is, but then you you use whatever survival skills are instinctive to you, right, to deal with the situation, or you need to draw in from other people, draw in wisdoms. Yes, so I yes. said to you, how yeah, how does your childhood, you know, how did that make you who you are today? And you went into that. Um and then you spoke about, you know, having lost your dad and Linda, you know, the two closest people to you. Now, what I, what I haven't heard and, and you know, what I want to now go in now is, you know, talk to us about like your rock bottoms. Talk to us about that because that's, you know, when, when you are in rock bottom, you don't want to be told be positive, look at life positively, you know, be kind to people. You, you, you can't even hear that information, you know, because you're so rock bottom. But obviously, this is your lens. It's how you've seen it. So tell us what your rock bottom is and how you navigate your way through that. Well, my my rock bottom began as a child with some of the abuses I was going through um, mm. in my younger years. And when I would go to the beach to get away from all that, to go to my safe place, one of the things that I finally found after so many days and hours of sitting there on the beach, just staring out um, into the distance was that I, I recognized the bad things. I recognized things like uh, guilt and um, Oh, selfishness and those types of things. And as I sat and 
thought about that over and over again, what I finally came up with was that I wanted to be the opposite of that. So, and I wanted that to be my, my foundation going forward. I didn't want to be somebody that was a taker or somebody that was selfish. I wanted to be selfless. I wanted to Mm. give. And I think I found that over time because as I did things like Boy Scouts or uh, helping my grandparents or helping other family members or friends, I found I felt good about that. And I, for some reason, I recognized how good that felt. And it was striking to me that I was able to put two and two together at that age. So Mm. despite what I went through and how terrible some of those times were, I was able to go to that place and I started recognizing it and using it and finding that anytime something was bad, if I could just put a positive spin on it and not go to a place where I'm judging or I'm pulling that negativity into my core, cast it away, move it aside, find your way forward through it. And I found as life went on, I was continuing to go to that place. When Mm. my grandfather passed away, I went there. When my grandmother uh, had a stroke uh, while I was in the military and I flew home to see her and my, my cousin Linda and my aunt were telling me, Jeffrey, she's gone. She doesn't have any more brain activity. Mm. Yet I walk into the room where she is. And while I'm holding her hand and talking to her, uh, suddenly there's brain activity and the nurses and the doctors are coming in to uh, try to figure out what's going on. Mm. And to me, it was her way of saying, um, it's going to be okay. And it's okay to move on with your life. So that was, that was a real striking moment for me. That was another rock bottom for me, a a place where I had to find my way out of where I was because I, I felt alone. And Mm. that was something else that I found uh, from those childhood days of sitting on the beach was I found I was alone a lot and I had to find my way through that. So being alone was yet one more rock bottom. Uh, So as time went on, anytime something would happen, I would always try to land on that positive spot. So later on in life, when my father had cancer and he passed away and then Linda passed away nine days later, that was extremely rock bottom to me. And I, uh, I was happy I was able to say goodbye to my father. Um, I felt bad that I couldn't say goodbye to Linda, but what was my positive spin? I was always there for both of them. Anytime they needed Mm. me, I was always there without question. Mm. So what I was able to fall back on positively with that was that I had no regret because I was always there. And I, I think that's one place where, when something negative happens to us, 
be it a trauma or not, we fall into a well where we're now faced with regret and we can't escape the well. So how do we find our way through that? So for me, going through life, uh, giving back and always being there to help was my way of um, doing something selfishly but and, and being helpful. But if something went wrong down the road, uh, I knew that I did the best that I could um, with whatever happened. Um, mm. I didn't... But so... So just hold, so to back up there, so you talk about, so, you know, when you're in the well, but I mean, so how do you, like, what does it look like on a daily basis? How do you get out the well? Well, for me now, it's, it's, um, it's just a place that I push through now. It, the, the well doesn't have um how would i express it um it doesn't have the impact maybe because i've i've been in it so many times i'm kind of numb to it but i know there's a better place and i i know mm. to go find that and not to dwell in that place because it mm. it, it doesn't um it doesn't help you heal to remain yes. there. So, yeah. so, so for you, for you, it's very much, it's, it's knowledge. Knowledge is power for you. So actually it's the knowledge absolutely. that, you know, not knowingly, uh, you need to change your thoughts. Like, so that's actually, yeah. so you're, so, so, and just to clarify, have you ever been on antidepressants or pills to help you get through life? I know you were on painkillers, but actually you spoke about when you were in the hospital that you did, it was more natural, a natural sort of process of healing as opposed to, for example, this uh, guest of mine, his interviews going out tonight. Uh, he was in a car crash, became paralyzed, right? So interesting that I'm <laughs> literally listening to him yeah. this morning and now I was listening to you and both you guys. I don't know how these stories collide, but, you know, it happened to be at the same time. But anyway, you know, they 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 completely dosed him on painkillers to get through to get through his process. And actually almost for nearly a year he was he was just dosed, you know. So um so that's sort of two points I'm making there in one, which is have you been on antidepressants ever? I know you seem to have tried the more natural way when you were in the hospital. Well, let me clarify. When I was in the mm. hospital, they did have me on massive doses of medication. Yes. One of the medications I'd taken uh, for an injury years earlier, and I knew I didn't want to be back on that medication and suddenly I'm back on it. Yes, I was on the antidepressants. They thought I needed to be on that because of being paralyzed. Uh, I was taking uh, sleeping pills to force me to sleep um, because I was having difficulty with that. Um, the, um, the I, I had a feeling in my deep tissue um, of uh, pins and needles and my body being on fire. Um, my body was uh, in total chaos trying to 
figure itself out. And I guess most of that was in my mind. I don't know, but the medication was driving me crazy. Um, I didn't try the holistic piece of this until after I got out of out of the hospital. Okay, and so that was because I, I heard that yesterday. I remember that you you did want to go the holistic route. So obviously, when you were in the hospital, you also you come out. They give you these pills. You're swallowing. You you compl- a bit helpless. But you were there for six weeks, and then you came out, and that's when you decided, no, you're going to approach this holistic route. Well, I not right away. I was on the medication for a couple of years. What I started to discover was that my body was very. Um, very tight. My muscles were very tight. Um, and as I was learning how to move again, I was finding those restrictions were incredible. As time went on and I started going down the holistic route of trying different therapies, when I met Jackie, my uh, neuromuscular massage therapist, one of the things she was finding was my muscles were like cement. She couldn't get in and manipulate the muscles. Mm. And all of a sudden, one day it dawned on me, what are the side effects of my medication? So I started researching the side effects and it just so happened mm. I was going in for a um, uh, meeting with one of my physical therapy doctors Mm. And I asked her about the side effects because I was noticing the difficulties in me trying to move. And I noticed some of the side effects of the medications I were on or I was on was um, muscle rigidity. And when I cornered her on that, she she told me, no, there's there's no uh, no side effects uh, like that. And I pulled Mm. out the paperwork and showed her. And she mm. quickly changed the subject and was trying to talk me into unnecessary surgeries like uh, Botox injections in the back of my uh, hamstrings, uh, cutting my Achilles tendon to release muscles. And I said no to that. And each I found each time I brought up this issue with the medication that the doctor didn't want to have the conversation and that told me right there, once again, be your own advocate. And that's when I decided I didn't, and, and it was my own decision. I'm not saying to anybody, hey, do what I did. I made my own choice to mm. start coming off of my medication. Mm. Uh, and when I did so, the thing that I found within a week was that muscle rigidity that I had went away. And wow. it went away extent that when Jackie was working on me the very next time, it was making her cry because she couldn't believe the difference in one week when I came off of that uh, medication. But beyond that, all of a sudden, I'm moving differently. Everything that I had muscle memory wise to make my body move was thrown out the door. It was completely different. So I knew at that point for me that this was a route that I needed to continue to chase and figure it out a little more, try Mm -hmm. to understand these things like fashion. But that solidified everything to me with my holistic recovery, that this was the road to go down and I didn't need Mm. to follow this other path anymore. 
So I was done with the doctors and I was going down this other path that was clearly working every day for me. So, yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So now, based on now what you're just saying, so just, so tell our listeners now, um, exactly what the, the physiological process was of, of, you know, from when you had the op, you woke up paralyzed, you couldn't feel your body, you felt like you were floating on a cloud, but yet your body was standing. Um, which makes me think, what is paralyzed? I thought para- like is paralyzed that you just can't feel your body. Isn't that you also can't move because you could stand, you said. Well, they brought me into a standing position. I didn't stand up. Oh, they, okay. They pulled, me, they pulled me up out of a chair and stood okay. me up on my feet. Um, okay. I had no muscle control at all at that point. Okay. Um, so if they had let you go, you would have just fallen to the ground. Oh, yeah, absolutely. She had a belt okay, around cool. my waist and was holding that to hold me in place. Yeah, okay, you said that. So, okay, so tell us now, because you've been to Nepal, you've, yeah, I mean, you've been to Paris. Tell us what was the physiological process, like literally what did your muscles have to do, your brain have to do, so that you actually got to taking your first step, like without, because I saw you walking yesterday when we had to then, you know, reevaluate our situation with the internet um so and you didn't have your walker so yeah tell us everything to when you just took your first step of being able to now walk so one of the things i was saying yesterday was that this is a leap of faith you when you take a step you you have something called proprioception you have awareness that you're making the step it's subconscious to you because it's not something you have to think about. Mm. And, and that was the same for me yet. Now it's all conscious. I have to physically focus on telling my leg to move forward, uh, to watch the foot come out in front of me Mm. to hit the foot. Um, I couldn't feel the floor. I, over time I could feel a vibration, but I, and that was all I had to work on, but that took quite a long period of time to get to that point. I had to turn off this thing inside of me that says you have to feel to make this thing happen. And, and that was a a stretch beyond stretches to make that occur. The other thing that I had to get in touch with was since I couldn't feel at the skin level, I could slightly notice something at the deep muscular level. And Mm. one of the things my physical therapist found at that time was since I was starting to somehow lock into that um, and she understood the vibration piece of this, so she would tap my my legs or my butt to get me to realize that hey this is here and try from here to make the leg move so it was a very slow process of trying to discover um what i needed to do from my brain to my body to make something move and to will it forward uh, to will it to do this thing that yes. i wanted it to do so yeah. 
the other aspect that was getting in the way in the beginning was um, after the paralysis, my brain could only handle so much in the course of a day where as time went on and I could get my body to move a bit, my brain would Mm. get tired. And Mm. my signal for that, that it was happening was uh, I would get something called phantosmia. And phantosmia is uh, your olfactory system uh, hallucinating. So you start thinking you're smelling something like burnt toast and it's not there. It's just the phantosmia because of the stroke uh, is Mm. occurring. So after, say, four hours of trying to do something, the phantosmia would kick in. And that was my signal. I had to lay off and rest for the rest of the day. So this uh, okay. process of of movement, whatever it might be, and it was extremely uh, infinitesimal in the beginning, uh, trying, able, trying to be able to move a toe or move a finger or rolling mm. my hand over. Uh, those were extremely difficult processes, but I found I was able to get there to make that happen uh, over time. And if I couldn't sleep, then while I'm awake, that's my focus. This is my new job. This is my job now, mm. however many hours of the day, is yeah. to learn how to get my life back. Tell me something, phantosmia, so you talk about that you you kind of hallucinate, right? You think that there's burnt toast, you're smelling burnt toast, etc. Um, is this because the body is under a certain amount of stress? So in a way, it's like a person that's not in your situation, you know, a person that can move all their limbs, etc. Um, maybe when they're pushed to that limit where their mind and their body's under a stress, they can go into a psychosis where they think something's happening, but it's not. Do you know what I mean? It's like, is there an, 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 a similarity there between phantosmia and a psychosis? It's like, it's the body's way of creating a narrative because you're under such stress. I'm not sure about that. Um, I, all I've read about with phantosmia is that it's uh, something, it, it's an after effect after a stroke. Uh, I'm not sure okay. how many people get it. Of what I've read of it, uh, it's supposed to only happen for uh, a few seconds. Mine would last hours or days at times, and it, it was constantly there. I still get it from time to time now as I'm continuing to evolve and find my way back. If my brain gets a little fatigued with... Um, accepting something new that it can talk to, um, Mm. more of a muscle, let's say, um, after the neuromuscular massage work, it's telling me that something's good happening. So, um, as far as other people though, that's hard to say, um, if they got to that extreme, if they did, then I would say, you know, it's certainly worth exploring and trying to find out what's manifesting it. Um, mm, mm. But um, it, I I learned how to use that in a positive manner to tell me when to slow down, or yeah. like now it tells me, hey, something's good happening, my brain's having to work a little more, uh, but by virtue of it having to work a little more, it's telling me 
neuro pathways are reconnecting. Yeah, so that's so that's good. But so how how do you know then? Because this is interesting, right? So how do you know then if it's telling you the positive or the negative? Because that's the thing, right, about why people flip in life, why people go into these states of psychosis, panic attacks, etc. It's because they don't understand that actually it's their body saying, okay, cool, slow down now, too much, step back, or go for a walk, breathe, take your mind of things. So what happens is they feel this and then they go into a spin. So how do you yeah. know the difference? Well, one of the things Jackie tells me all the time is how mindfully aware I am as I've gone through this over the years, uh, that I am able to uh, recognize what's going on in a certain part of my body. Uh, it could be a hamstring. It could be, um, oh, my um, a muscle in my arm. I'm able to communicate effectively to her to tell her this is what I'm sensing. Uh, when it comes to the phantosmia, this is stuff that I've learned over the years, and I'll journal something from time to time while I'm sitting, and I'll write about a particular feeling, and I may not have the answer to why something is happening at that moment. It may take me weeks or uh, months to figure out mm. why this particular thing is happening. But I've mm. learned through the work that she's doing on me with breaking up the fascia and allowing the nerves to have circulation again, that muscles are starting to first wake up. In other words, I'm sensing awareness of mm. a muscle beginning to work. After I notice that, I may notice it turns on and off a few times. I may notice how it affects other parts of my body when it's mm. turning on and off. And then as time goes further along, I start to find that that particular part of that muscle is now starting to strengthen. And as it's doing that, other parts of my body that are recruiting to give strength to that weak area are mm. no longer having to try as hard because I'm getting support from something that wasn't working before. Mm. While all that's going on, I'll notice the phantosmia through it and the levels of phantosmia as I'm going through it. But I'm because of the paralysis, it's made me hyper aware of my body and everything going on. I'm constantly listening to it. And what I find interesting about that is being able to multitask while I'm doing it. I might be mm. teaching in a classroom and while I'm moving, I'm aware of something that's going on. So that helps. Like me. what? Like what? If I'm if I'm standing in a classroom and I'm teaching, or let's mm. say I'm I'm walking up and down between tables in the classroom in the middle of the room, and I'm turning, I'm aware of my awareness as I'm stepping, so I don't lose my balance. And okay. I might notice that I can make that turn a little easier all of a sudden. And mm. I'm doing that while I'm talking about something very technical about an airplane mm. and answering mm. questions while I'm doing mm. it. So two things that I want to ask in this sentence here. So 
Um, I'm curious, I'm interested and curious how you would philosophize and compare your job as a pilot, right, to to the, the technicality of how you've had to navigate all these little connections in your body again? That's, that is a great question. That's an amazing question. So because of my background in aviation, one of the things I had to learn flying all over the world over so many years is learning how to speak to people. You're speaking to people on a radio that you can't see uh, mm. maybe more than a thousand miles away. Uh, they may be speaking English, but English isn't their primary language. So how do we keep it simple? How do we know that when we're communicating, each of us understands where we're trying to get to so nothing uh, bad happens? So that was yet one more thing I took into this situation with being paralyzed. And one of the things I found out right away was I was not speaking the same language as the people working with me, be it doctors, be it nurses, physical therapists, uh, a Pilates instructor. So I realized uh, very quickly that I needed to start learning their language. I needed to learn anatomy. Mm -hmm. So what a great thing to do if you're paralyzed and you're trying to find your way through each day, we'll start mm -hmm. learning something. Start learning something new. And wouldn't this be a great way to find your way through this thing, but mm. to learn their language so when you're speaking to them, they understand everything you're talking about. So now when I'm talking about this muscle or that muscle, I'm speaking their language. And now when they're speaking, I understand their language as well. So this mm -hmm. was very impactful for me going through this process uh, because that was something I dealt with my entire life, um, mm. going to all these places in the world, uh, traveling uh, even from a young age, uh, be it in this country um, at a young age or as I went on into the military, now going to other countries and trying to mm. learn their language so I could communicate more effectively. Mm. So this was easy to figure out. Now all I needed to do was make it happen. And I started reading uh, quite a few anatomy books so I could start figuring that out. Yeah, wow. And while you were saying it, I was, I was also thinking, did you kind of have that same conversation with your own anatomy, right? Did you, did you also think, I need to, did the, being a philosopher, you know, a analyst right like being one of those people I can imagine you thought to yourself right I need to have that same uh mentality that approach with with my body like we need to learn the same language here I need to learn your language down there right I need to learn this language I need to I need to learn the language of my body to to make it work to make it listen to me you know <laughs> well and there's something else that goes along with this that I learned along the way which is this, it's great to learn this. It's great to be able to communicate in this manner with the people you're working with. The other piece of this is you can't let it become your entire life 
you still have a life and this thing you're doing is very important to be able to move and regain your independence. That's all extremely important. But you have to not lose sight of why you're doing it. And the reason why you're doing it is to live your life and to live mm. your life happily. So mm. there's a trade-off and you have to realize both sides of this fear is that it's it's not all your whole life isn't made up of your recovery. At some point, you have to step off of that and remember how to be social again and be happy and interact with with people. Otherwise, you're going to quickly find you are um, introverted. You're not allowing that in. And that's important to keep that in mind as you're as you're moving your way forward through all of mm. this. Mm. So now tell me what what is the difference? So what's because I'm not a doctor. Um, what? Yeah. Um, and I'm not well versed in this whole area of paralysis, right? I mean, each story I'm speaking to, I'm learning something new, and it's a different part of the spine that was fractured and all these different things. But what's the difference between someone who can never walk again? Like, did they, did, like, did it just snap off? I mean, like, I know it sounds like a stupid question, but I hope I'm asking a question for millions right now. Like, how is it that, so you were, you know, you, you had your story. I've had other guys with their story, but how is it that some people can't ever walk again or can't move anything again? So I can answer that. So mm. there's there are two levels of paralysis. One is called paresis and the other is called hemiparesis. Mm -hmm. So if you had a break in your uh, spinal cord, a, uh, a spinal cord injury beyond a stroke on the spinal cord, um, whatever that might be, uh, where paresis is involved and the the spinal cord is severed, for instance, then they are not going to get the feeling back. For me, it was uh, hemiparesis. So um, I had a very unusual stroke on my spinal cord, the size of the head of a pin, and mm. I was in an unknown area. They, they didn't... Um, they didn't think by what happened to me that I would uh, move again, but I was a question mark. My life was a question mark. So that was all I needed to say, well, since nobody knows, then I'm going to figure out mm. how to make this thing work again. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, because they're not in my body, they could be the greatest doctor in the world, but they're in their body. I'm in my body. Mm. Therefore, them telling me you're more than likely never going to walk again. Well, that's not good enough. Uh, yeah. So that's why I had the approach I had to um, go in and help myself move. Now, you were. <laughs> that's why I had the approach. <laughs> well, I had the approach to go in. Also, yeah. <laughs> you were also asking something you may not have realized you were asking. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I want to kind of throw something out there too, which is what is paralysis like? What is mm -hmm. paralysis? What does it feel like to be paralyzed? And mm -hmm. 
I, I can answer that this way. Uh, to those out there who've never been paralyzed. And the reason I'm talking about this is to talk to caregivers um, when they're wondering what's going through the minds of the person they're helping. Mm. And it's important that they understand because they're one of the most or the most important pers or person in that person's life that needs the caregiving. Um, so what I can say to you about paralysis, how many times have you woken up in the middle of the night and you say slept on your arm wrong and you, um, couldn't feel your arm? Have you done that in your life? Hmm. You have. So uh, yeah. You, yeah, you fall. In other words, your arm fell asleep. Yes. Mm. You've had that experience. So mm. when you have that experience, what's the first thing you do when you wake up in the middle of the night and you realize that your arm fell asleep? Mm. You, you wake up, you're alarmed. You can't see the arm. You can't feel the arm. You don't know where the arm is. So mm. you're, your first reaction to that is a primal reaction. Start shaking it. But beyond mm. that, your brain is uh, in fear. Uh, fight or flight has just taken over. So you may at that point turn a light on so you can see the arm that you're shaking to verify, <laughs> yeah. hey, it's here, it still exists. So yeah. you're shaking your arm you know, feverishly to get the blood flowing back in it. So you can mm. feel it again. And, mm. you know, all of a sudden you can feel it. You're relaxed again. Okay, I still have an arm. I can feel my arm. I can move my fingers. Well, now imagine that whole feeling through your entire body. Mm. Only this time you can't get up. You can't shake your body. You can't move it. And yeah. there's paralysis. That's wow. what paralysis That's That's awful. That's awful. Sure. Because I, I do remember that. And funny enough, I, it happened more when you're a child, right? Because you end up sleeping in the weirdest positions. And, sure. And actually, now that you're saying that story, I'm thinking about it. And every night before I go to bed, I go to my children's room to just check that, you know, it's all good before the final light goes off. Every night I do that. And oh my gosh, I don't know how many times I go in there and my, my son's, his head's on the bed and his feet are on the floor. My daughter's half all over the place. And as a child, you sleep in the most crazy position. So I actually relate yeah. to that from being a child. And you do, you wake up and you're like, oh my God, where's my arm? Like, where's, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It, you know, but it now, feels like rubber. Uh, yeah. yeah it, there's no feeling in it. And the, you, yeah. know, you think about yeah. the panic of that. And, yeah. And, that's so like I say, imagine that over your entire body, only now yeah. you can't shake your body, you can't move it. And yeah. Um yeah. So and then every time you close your eyes, your body disappears. You don't exist anymore. So that was sure. the beginning of all this. And that's where I started realizing I needed to make goals. I need you know, from the neck up, everything worked. So I could talk, I could think, I could see, I could breathe, I could smell, uh, sort of smell. Um, but all that worked. Um, I had no sense of hot or cold, but 
through at least one nostril every time I inhaled, I could sense temperature there. So mm. that was my sense of hot or cold at that point. But at least wow. I could do those things. And if I could yeah. move that along and start making some goals, then, uh, okay, life's good again. I, you know, I'm in a devastating place, but hey, I can move this thing forward now. Yeah. And, and speaking on that, so yesterday you mentioned Jackie and, um, you know, so I will put the name of your book, uh, in the show notes. So, you know, people can refer to that to, to go check it out. But, um, it's what, what is it called? The book? The book is called Finding Forward. You have the will Finding... within. Okay, cool. Finding so forward. yesterday you said that you actually dedicated that book to to Jackie, right? Yes. Um, and so, and you also mentioned yesterday that you know Jackie made you look at yourself in the mirror, and you know because you were going through rough times, and at at one point she made you, well, I don't know if it was in the mirror, but she made you look at yourself, and and say to yourself, "I am okay, I'm okay." Yes. Um, so I just want to go back on that because that for me in sort of that last section of the interview was also quite profound how I found how this, you know, Jackie angel that came into your life, um, and you mention her name so often, right, is, is really so much. And, and what I said yesterday was it's funny how, um, we have these moments in life, these one sentences or, you know, and I said, if there's a breakup or, you know, when something traumatic happens in your life, be it a breakup or anything like failing something or not making the team or not getting the job or some person says something to you and it's one sentence and it's a sentence that you remember for the rest of your life. And it has the most profound impact on everything that happens in your life going forward, that one sentence. And, and it can only have that profound impact because, because your heart was so deeply broken at the time or your will was so broken or your soul was destroyed at that time, right? So it's got to – that's why that sentence has the power to impact you. Um, and for me, yeah, for me that was what Jackie told you. So just let, let's just um, recap on that, you know, just how Jackie has really molded your life going forward as well. I always remember the first day that I saw her uh, and she asked me what I thought she could do for me. And uh, my pain level was through the roof at that point. And I told her, if you could help me get rid of a small portion of my pain for five seconds, and if I never got to experience that ever again, at least I had five seconds of knowing what it felt like to um, experience a reduction in my pain. And the word feel at that time was not a word I led into my vocabulary. It didn't belong in my vocabulary and I kept it as far away from me as possible. So, um, so it was profound at that moment that I said that and it, it made her cry. And over time, as she worked on me over the next year, uh, she was working so hard to try to get into my muscles, but they were just so tight and stiff uh, from the side effects of the medication. And through all of this, she was watching how hard it was for me to move, to, 
to put one foot in front of the other. And she saw my struggle. She uh, was always understanding of my pain. And when I got on the other side of coming off of the medication and she could see a little relief, she could also see that the trauma had really taken a toll on me. And that was at that moment on that day in June of uh, 2016 that she looked at me and uh, she was very serious when she looked at me and said, you need to tell yourself you're okay. You survived this. You made it. You're okay. Tell yourself you're okay. And she said, I want you to tell me now. Use those words. Tell me that you're okay. And it mm. it just shocked me. It, it uh, I, I didn't know how to let those words come out of me. And what shocked me most about it was four years had gone by up to this point, and nobody along the way ever said, hey, you're okay. Everything's okay. Never once did I think to myself, well, I'm okay. So mm. it really shocked me to hear those words. And I needed it. I, I needed somebody to shake me in that manner mm. and say mm. that to me. And it, it stuck with me. Um, it was very important. I did say the words. I didn't feel confident at first when I said it, uh, but I said it. And I thought, well, this is a start. This is good. I needed mm. this. This is yet mm. one more form of healing that I need. And the one thing that was interesting about it was something happened later that year where all of that came back around to me. And it's it's in the book. I, I, I won't um, talk about it now because it's it's such a profound moment. And uh, to this day, it still shocks me. Um, I don't know how to wrap words around it at times, but it happened. Um, mm. And it, it's an amazing thing that happened to me. Um, uh, so that's where I always go, though, that, you know, if things are getting difficult uh, for whatever reason, um, you know, and these days it's it's rare, but I'm still going through a healing process. But anytime I feel like it's not the greatest day in the world, I can always look back to that moment, that moment in time. And I see that moment in time as clearly as the day it happened mm. when she told me to say that. And that's all I have to do. And it's it's like that angel is there to say, hey, I'm still here. And yeah, you are okay. So wow, no yeah. matter how bad things get, I can always go back to that moment. And, mm. and I hold on to that moment very strongly. Um, so, and I think we each need those moments in our life uh, to help us through. Uh, look at what we're all going through now with the pandemic. We all need to know, mm. hey, we're okay. And, and to find that one person or place that helps you get there to know, yeah, hey, everything's all right. We're going to be okay mm. going forward. I'm going to be okay going forward. So, yeah, that's mm. important. Yeah. And, um, you know, what I also had sort of put together, you know, strung together in my own heart through listening to your story um, yesterday to, you know, to the second part as well, is um, 
you know, the fact that you had this rough childhood, and I told you this yesterday, right, the fact that you did have this rough childhood, you know, that's enough to make someone go down the wrong path in life, you know, and oh, yeah. that's those are often the stories that you hear, right? It's the people that end up going down the wrong path or people that come from a bad childhood. And, and I sort of reiterate and restressed how your childhood is, it's like the beginning and the end. It determines determines the rest of your life it's the beginning and it determines what happens later right and of course you know you can do things about it as you go along and you know listen to podcasts like this and and hear stories and do things that can change your life and your in your perspective um but um what's beautiful um is that you've had these angels through your life these, these people that you've always been able to talk to and i made a very strong point that for me, what I was taking from this conversation largely was very much also about, you know, if I hear your story of how you had this start in life, you know, which no child should have, um, then, you know, you lost your dad, then you lost your aunt, the two closest people to you. Um, then you ended up waking up without any feeling, no movement. Um, uh, you know, now you mentioned to me also you lost your grandmother, um, there was someone else you mentioned earlier that someone also oh, you lost. Yeah. Your grandfather. grandfather. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, all these situations, the, the thing is, is that human beings are so resilient. They can deal with the ultimate trauma. Um, but I think what was, what's so, for me, the take home from this is so important as a mom also is, is you just be aware to nurture one person in your life, at least. Do you know what I mean? Just yeah. to be aware to give support to one person in your life. And you talk about this throughout your interviews, is your constant message is about helping. Um, yes. And I think that that's, you know, what's also stood you in good stead to be able to really, you know, face the storm is the fact that you, while you've lived in the storm, you've had people that you've always been able to talk to, um, and when you lost them, you found another angel. And, you know, we haven't spoken about your wife, but, you know, we, I, I let whatever comes into the narrative come in, you know. But Jackie, obviously being so profound in your recovery of this, and I'm sure your wife as well, because she's still with you, um, which often in so many stories, they end up leaving, you know, the partner ends yeah. up leaving because they can't cope with this dynamic, you know. Yeah. But yeah, um, so I also, you know, it's, it's, it's so important for people to realize and also for the person listening now, you know, to realize that if you have children, if you have a brother or a sister or, you know, a colleague, it's just be aware to at least support one person because if everyone was aware just to support one person and to nurture one person then you know obviously it would have this beautiful chain effect but that is what helps people through trauma through the to, to navigate the storm is having one person at least that they can trust and talk to yes yeah um it's very important and it's uh, you find if you're the person going through the trauma that uh, you may not find that person uh, who you're most comfortable talking with. It may not be a family member and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you're in the midst of something you've never dealt with in your life. And by virtue of that, it's, it's creating its own journey, its own path 
in mm. your life. And it's, it's not always something that you, you can control. And we always wrap ourselves around what we can control and our independence. And when a trauma occurs, it's, it's its own animal right now. And you have to find a way how to talk to it and how to make your way through and uh, acknowledge this thing and um, give it its acknowledgement um, and find peace with it. So mm-hmm. while you're doing that, the you want somebody that you can talk to, to have an outlet. Uh, you need to find your way into opening yourself up again. And you may find that when you're talking with family members, they say they understand. Everybody says they understand, but they may not understand. And it's it's not a fault thing or anything like that. It's, um, you know, when you talk to somebody who does understand, mm. who mm. is maybe completing your sentences because they do understand. Um, and, and that's where you're going to find that comfort. So it doesn't matter who it is. What matters mm. is that you find that person and you allow yourself to open up again. One thing I always found, and I used to say in the beginning with all of this, was I was always holding a shield and swinging a sword uh, to keep everything away from me. And I needed to figure out how to put that down and let people back into my life, let people back into my heart. Um and open up to other people as well. I was so focused on the physical piece of this, I was consumed by it. And that's when I started realizing, oh, wait a minute, this isn't 80% physical and 20% Mm. psychological. It's the absolute opposite. And I need to Mm. figure out how to re-enter that part of life again too. So Mm. yeah, it's important to find that one person that you can talk to and, and just open up, let, let it all out, just let it out there. And, you know, um, uh, allow yourself a moment to just let go, let it all go, let it out and let go. And it took me a while to figure that out. Um, and I found I could, I could talk to her, you know, and I was talking to many people during that time, but I, I always found when I could talk to her, she got it. And, and then I could move on. I could, I could let it go and let it out. And, and that's when I started feeling like a human being again. Okay. Now I'm back in a human condition and all's good. Everything's fine. Mm. Uh, once mm. again, I'm okay. So, mm. and I think that's where she got it for me was to say, Hey, um, and shake me a little bit and say, Hey, you're okay. So, um, and that was good. So healing continues. Yeah. Beautiful. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thank you so very much, Jen. I am so appreciative of having this time with you. Um, I can't begin to tell you how wonderful this was to sit and chat with you about all of this and to get this message out to people to say, Hey, you're okay too. And you yeah. can find your way through what you're going through. So yeah. I, I'm yeah. I'm always honored and privileged when I 
uh, get to talk about all of this. Yeah. Oh, well, it's an absolute pleasure. And, um, you know, that's what these stories do, don't they? They they heal people, you know, they distract yeah. them from their thoughts. That's what I always say. It's like meditation, listening to a story. Um, but we'll stay in touch and, um, yeah, That's don't just disappear. Do. And I definitely won't just disappear now. You'll get a message from me in the next hour or two or three. Since you're like seven hours behind me, I'll send you one when I'm in bed later. <laughs> like, <laughs> how's it, you know? <laughs> yeah. But um, anyway, no, it was. it's just been really cool. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's actually one thing I do just want to say quickly because I'm always so true to my curiosity. Um is, you know, I mean, because normally I, I often talk to people about following their truth, right? And, um, you know, that can come in so many different forms. But I'm just curious, like, have you, like, your job, I mean, your, your, your love for flying and that, you know, you didn't even really, you didn't go into that a lot. And I don't know if you go into that much in the book, but I'm just curious because I'm such a, advocate for people need to follow their truth right and no matter if it's a journey that takes one year or 10 years like follow your truth don't give up and I'm literally a breathing example of that so I'm just curious how that impacted you you know that that suddenly like you said in the first part like just you had to put all those papers away those vaccination papers and that sort of thing like have you dealt with that is that okay now are you have you mourned the loss of that? Of traveling or? Of your uh, flying. Of my flying? You, of you being no, the, I, the. No, I don't, I don't mourn the loss of any of that. I, I lived a good career. I did more in my flying career than, than most. Um, mm. um, I got to fly worldwide, um, fly into countries that, um, most people can't find on a map or pronounce uh, how many people have flown <laughs> cool. into Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso. So um, holy moly, yeah, uh, where is that? Burkina Faso. Uh, yeah, so, uh, it's right there in Africa. So um, uh, uh, north, find, uh, north, right up. Yeah, find uh, Benin and go north. Um, mm. So um, in, in West Africa. So. Um, uh, or find Mali and go south. Um, mm. So I lived an amazing career flying, uh, having an amazing career in the Air Force uh, with so many wonderful people that I still keep up with to this day. Um, I had a, an amazing career flying uh, at a few different cargo airlines. Uh, and then I... I just by accident happened into this teaching thing a couple of airlines yes, ago. Yeah. And I, I found that uh, I, I was shocked that this was a calling and it was something that I enjoyed and that I, I could start giving back. So do I miss the flying? No, not at all. Uh, sitting in the front of the plane. Now when I travel yeah. on a vacation, uh, I feel great. Uh you know, sitting in back and letting somebody else do the flying. So, um, uh, no, I, I don't have any regrets. I get asked by students quite often, do I miss flying? No. Mm, uh, you know, mm. I've had 40 years of packing a bag uh, and uh, for work. Do I need to 
uh, pack a bag any longer? No, I don't. Unless I'm going on my own vacation. Um, yeah. So I've loved it. I've enjoyed it. But what did I enjoy most of it? It wasn't. It wasn't the actual flying. It was the people I was doing it with. That's what made it fun for me. Yeah. Is all of the people. And the one thing I can say about all of that is, and one thing I can say about my life to encapsulate all of it is, everybody that I've met through my life from childhood on made me a better person. And I can certainly say that in my aviation career. And I darn sure can say that about everybody that I've met along the way since this stroke and paralysis happened. Each and every person I've met that's helped me has truly, beyond words, made me a better person. So I'm thankful for all of that. And I don't live in regret of anything. So mm, I, I'm cool. And I feel very fortunate for that. I really do. Yeah. I, I feel like that's a gift that I've been able to uh, appreciate the people in my life and, mm. and to be thankful and graceful for each and every person that's touched my life, no matter where it yeah. was. I'm very, yeah. very thankful for that. Mm. Cool. Well, now, now you're on a journey of traveling people through the mind. So you're still traveling, you're still journeying people, you're still taking them on these journeys, but now it's the mind journeys, right? So yeah, that's a good absolutely. place to end. And as you were talking about that, an airplane flew over, which hasn't done throughout the conversation. So it was a small one, I could hear. It's one of those small little carriers. Anyway, Jeffrey, so, so nice to chat to you and to meet you, and we'll stay in touch. And I will put the name of your book on the show notes. And yeah, I will message you later. This won't be our final goodbye anyway. Wonderful. Yes, let's please stay in touch. So guys, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Share the show with all your family and friends. As I always say, sharing is caring. Go to the website, inspirationalinterviews.com and also join the club, please. There you'll have access to really super cool features and also, yeah, great guest content and you will be a part of our live interviews. Find us on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. Thanks for listening, guys, and uh, see you on the flip side. Let's see where this song might lead.